The Covenant Podcast exists to discuss doctrine, theology, and the biblical worldview from a covenantal Baptist perspective. We pray that this resource will be edifying to you and glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here, and this episode is brought to you, like the last several, from our friends at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary exists to provide ministerial training in the context of a confessional local church. They are, among other things, confessional, Baptist, affordable, and accessible, and recently they have just been accredited. So if you would stay tuned for more information about that in a later episode, you can learn about CBTS at cbtseminary.org. Again, that is cbtseminary.org. Um, this episode, we have the privilege of having Dr. Christopher Yuan as our our guest, Dr. Yuan, has taught Bible at Moody Bible Institute for over 10 years, and he has a speaking ministry on, on faith and sexuality that has reached five continents. He has co-authored a book with his, his mother, a memoir called Out of a Far Country, as well as he has written a, a recent book, and among others, on, on sexuality called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationship Shaped by God's Grand Story. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Yuan. Oh, thanks for having me on, Pastor Jimmy. So we are going to have several questions here on, on the subject of sexuality, but um, the first one we're going to start off with is tell Tell us, tell me, as well as our listeners, the motivation behind writing your latest book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, and and what sets this book apart from all the other ones on homosexuality. Well, I think, I mean, obviously, this is a very important topic, as as you would know, as you know, being in in church ministry, it's it's engaging the gospel with culture, and and when our culture is swimming in almost a, a sea of confusion when it comes to sexuality, well, it's going to impact our, our congregants, those that we uh, share the gospel with, those that we are discipling and mentoring in our congregations. So I, I think just the topic itself is important. But I also need to realize that there's other books out there. You know, the last thing an author wants to do is to, you know, repeat or say again what others have already said, or maybe even said better than, than myself. So I didn't want to repeat that. And 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 as I was looking at the books out there, uh, and and not maybe even looking at the ones that have been out older uh, that were for from more of a psychological, a counseling, or a therapy perspective, even though you know, they would say they're coming from a Christian perspective. I'm not even looking at those, but even the ones right now, there's a lot of books that are talking about how do we minister better to uh, people wrestling with sexual identity. Um, Some books that are saying how to be a better friend um, or other books that might not be as pragmatic, but focusing on good exegesis and hermeneutics and defending a biblical sexuality. And what I saw was kind of a something missing in the middle, then that's a big middle. And that is approaching this topic uh, through the lens of biblical and systematic theology. 
because although the exegesis and hermeneutics is important looking at particularly the six different passages that touch on same-sex relationships and same-sex sexual behavior, uh, those are very important, but we can't build a Christian life on God's no. So I thought, what is God's yes? And and when we look at the whole breadth of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, it says a lot about sexuality uh, and not just on what we should not do, but the beauty of biblical sexuality. And so that that was kind of my my goal of, of writing this book to to not just talk about where God, the, the, the proscriptions, but the, but the prescriptions as well, talking about how we should live. Mm. Um, I had the privilege of hearing you give your testimony at my Christian undergraduate Bible college at Missouri mm. Baptist University when I was attending there. Mm. But for those who, who haven't heard your story, um, can you give us a brief overview of how you came to faith in Christ and, and how you don't really have the, the typical path to becoming <laughs> a, a Bible professor? <laughs> right, not at all. Um, I, you know, so kind of in a nutshell, I was not raised in a Christian home and yet I, I did, uh, and yet my parents raised me with very traditional Chinese values, strong family values. I wrestled with my sexuality from a young age. Unfortunately, I was exposed to pornography around nine years old. And that was the first time I realized I had these attractions. I kept those hidden and I didn't become public with those you know, what I call at that time, coming out of the closet at that time, uh, until my early 20s. Through that crisis, uh, my mother came to faith and my father came to faith. And, you know, it's interesting because we hear the narrative today that Christian parents, evangelical Christian parents, are not able to love their gay children. But I had the exact opposite experience. It was before my parents became Christian that they, in a sense, rejected me. They gave me an ultimatum. And it wasn't until my mother came to faith and then a few months later, my father came to faith that they knew that they could love me just as God loved them as while they were weak, while they were still sinners, while they were even enemies, Romans 5. So it's it's just amazing what the gospel can do uh, to, to renew our understanding of a lost and broken world. So I... I Began living as a, I began living openly as a gay man, and I was, I'm from Chicago, and I was living in Louisville at that time, pursuing my doctorate of dentistry. I came out of the closet, and at that time, I was spending most of my free time in the gay clubs while I was going to dental school. I started selling drugs, I, you know, doing drugs and selling drugs, and eventually I was expelled from dental school uh, just three months before I was to receive my doctorate. So I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and this whole time, my parents had no idea that I was doing drugs or what type of, yeah, just uh, kind of worldliness and secular and, and kind of rebellion I had gone through. And they knew I was living as a gay man, but they recognized, and this is so important, that my biggest problem was not being in a same-sex relationship or being in same-sex relationship, but my biggest sin was unbelief. And they prayed that I would put my faith in Christ, not just know Christ, demons know Christ, it's making no difference, but faith that mm-hmm. that results in union with Christ, that results in the gift of repentance, that results in conversion that, that, that receives a gift of repentance. So that was so important. They prayed for that miracle, and it was a radical miracle. They, uh, they came to visit me one time in Atlanta. I told them to get out. <laughs> I kicked them out. And, and you know, I weren't, I, they weren't 
preaching at me and they weren't even telling me that I was living in sin. They, they weren't tiptoeing around it. I knew that that was what they believed, but they weren't constantly reminding me of it. But on that visit, just the fact that God had so radically transformed their lives that they radiated Christ, that was offensive to me and I told them to get out. My dad, before I left, gave me his very first Bible. I took it and I threw it in the trash can. That's that's how hard-hearted I was. And they prayed for a miracle that God would do whatever it takes. My mother fasted every Monday for seven years. She fasted once 39 days on my behalf because she knew that it was going to take a miracle, an absolute miracle to bring this prodigal son to the father. Well, that miracle came with a bang on my door. It was 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. So I was arrested, found myself in jail, and I called home, just dreading dreading making that phone call. And my mother's first words were, are you okay? No condemnation. And I'm just reminded of what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Not his anger, not his wrath, not his punishment, but it's his kindness. God used that uh, day, pouring out his grace to me, using the words of my mother. Well, I a few days after that, I was walking around the cell block, passed by this garbage can, and I thought, this is my life. You know, Pastor Jimmy, I'm a I'm from an upper middle, upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My, my father and mother, even though they came to this country with nothing, zero, zero in their pockets. My father had $50 in his pocket. That's it. Uh, and they, they essentially achieved the American dream. We were, we were well off. Uh, we were successful. I mean, we were living the American dream, but, but, uh, you know, but, but, but not happy. And, um, but they, you know, I I was from a a good home and now I found myself among common criminals, just like the trash in this garbage can. I was about to walk by it, and I saw on top of the trash a Gideon's New Testament. Took it back to my cell, began reading it, mm. and God began to radically transform my my understanding of myself first. You know, it wasn't even first about who God was, but first and foremost, I needed to recognize who I was. And I realized that I had rebelled against the government. I had rebelled against my parents. I was not honoring them. And uh, when I read Romans 1, what stood out to me most was actually not Romans 1, 1, 26 and 27. It was at the end, dishonoring your parents. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I couldn't argue with that. I, I had dishonored and I was even approving of that. So that cut me to the chase, especially when I was in prison, when no one was visiting me in prison except my parents. Well, I was reading the Bible and... Um, Oh, I got worse news as well, and I got the news that I was HIV positive. And it's just amazing how God uses trials, and sometimes the worst of trials. You know, how how much worse can it be? I'm, I'm in jail. I'm in prison, facing ten years to life. I eventually got six, but still six years, especially with an HIV, uh, you know, HIV status. I felt like that was a death sentence. A few days after that, I was laying in my bed, and I looked up at the metal bunk above me, and it read, "If you're bored." Read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And as I read around that and read the context, I saw that this was a prophet, Jeremiah, writing to a really rebellious uh, 
secular heathen nation, Israel. And he said, I still had a plan for you. And I thought, man, if God still had a plan for a rebellious nation that had no interest in God at that moment, and yet Jeremiah was saying that, that this holy God still had a plan for Israel, I thought he surely could still have a plan for me. But I don't know where that plan meant, what that where that was going to take me. So during this time, I kept reading the Word of God. I had nothing better to do, <laughs> Pastor Jimmy. So I kept reading it, and um, <laughs> and God began to convict me. And and you know, the first thing it was not just that same sex relationships were sinful, which 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 they are. And and I, I really wanted to justify it. Even a, a, a prison chaplain gave me a book that justified it, that was affirming this gay. Uh, it's a distorted interpretation that it was okay to be in a same-sex relationship. He gave me a book and I read it with the Bible next to it and everything inside it, inside of me wanted to run with it and say, yes, this is it. But it really was, and I look back now, it was a miracle. It was the Holy Spirit it, that indwelled inside of me that convicted me that this was not correct, that it was contrary clearly contrary to the word of god so i gave the book back to my the chaplain and i just began going through the word of god uh and i realized i i thought okay let's just set aside these six passages which of course you know we can't but let's just say for argument's sake let's set, set them aside and let's see if there's anywhere else in the entire scripture that would actually give a positive affirmation for a monogamous same-sex relationship that sex and marriage you know, could be male and male, female, female, that it didn't have to be male and female. I looked through the whole Bible and I found nothing. So I was at a turning point. Decision had to be made, either embrace my sexuality or embrace Christ. And by God's grace, I embraced Christ. But that still meant I had to wrestle with who I was. And, and this is why, you know, my new book, I start with that, who I was, my identity, because my whole world was gay. All my friends were gay. Everything, you know, my my apartment complex was 90% gay. Everything about me was gay. And and it was such, and I think this is what we often miss as Christians, because we begin with sinful behavior with our gay friends, our gay neighbors, our gay loved ones. But if they don't even see this sexuality as related to behavior at all, but rather related to their essence, to their ontology, how can we even get to the next step and of convincing them that this is sinful behavior? So I think first and foremost, at least definitely for me, I first, I recognize that this is not who I was, that my sexuality should not be grounded in my desires and my behaviors, but my identity need to be grounded in Genesis that I'm created in God's image, but also the redemptive work on the cross that my identity now, if I'm created in the image of God, and Jesus is the image of God, well, that was so important that I needed to realize that my identity needed to be in Christ. In other words, as the Reformers talk about union with Christ, you can't get around, I mean, a single New mm -hmm. Testament text that does not talk about union with Christ. Uh, so that was so mind-boggling for me to realize that all this time I put my identity in the wrong thing. And, um, and also realizing that this, this false paradigm that we've built up, that we've, that we've bought into from the secular world, uh, this, this framework of heterosexuality, homosexuality, bisexuality, 
it's the wrong framework. Certainly heterosexuality is, is the right direction, mm -hmm. but it's too broad. Um, but anyway, so I came up with this concept of holy sexuality, which mm -hmm. we can talk about in just a moment. But um, yeah, so and I knew that I needed to kind of flesh that out further, uh, you know, in my, in my new book. So that's kind of part of my story. And then I got out of prison, applied to Moody Bible Institute uh, because I got into dental school without getting my bachelor's. So I went back, got my bachelor's in biblical languages, got my master's in exegesis. And then finally, uh, 2014, got my doctorate in ministry and started teaching at Moody, just a big miracle and a huge blessing. That is an awesome story of God's grace working in as well as through your life and and also through your your parents' life. I mean, you're, I remember you telling at at that chapel um, how your mother prayed for you so yeah. diligently. It reminded me a lot of what I read of Augustine's yeah. mother praying for him regularly. Yeah. Um, we're gonna go ahead and jump down on some of the questions that I've given you. Um, you kind of alluded to this in, in your story, but could you flesh out why it, is in, why it is so important that we begin with identity? That is who we are. Yeah. And, and you relate that to a theological term in, in your book called Theological Anthropology. So if you could kind of yeah. flesh that out. Um, and then also kind of get on the negative consequences yeah. of getting this. Wrong. Yeah. So Jimmy, you know, there's, you know, theological anthropology, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with that term, but I, I'm, I'm going to guess that a lot of mm -hmm. those in, in our pews would not be very familiar mm -hmm. with that term. Um, but you know, if we were to break the two words down, theology or theological, um, and anthropology, I think mm -hmm. people are like, oh, I know what that means. Anthropology, that's the study of humanity. Theology, that's, you know, the study of God. So theological anthropology, and, and why anthropo Why is it theological anthropology? Because anthropology, this discipline, as we know of it today, is predominantly, I, I would say almost all, if not mostly, a very secular humanist discipline and, and, and scientific, you know, endeavor mm -hmm. that begins with essentially that there is no God that most anthropologists that I know, they're not, they're not beginning that God, you know, human beings are created instead human beings evolved. And if human beings evolved as anthropologists assume their presupposition, then they anthropology is essentially just studying how human societies evolved over time. And of course they believe it's over centuries, over millennia, over millions of years. And um, so that's, that's, that's basically what anthropology is. And, and as Jen, John Calvin essentially said, that we can't understand um, humanity without beginning, uh, be, without beginning with God. So why is that? Because first of all, if we're going to study human beings, we need to look at our origins. And if we are created by God, which we have been, um, we need to look at our creator and what's the purpose of that. So theological anthropology is in essence the study of humanity through the eyes of God. And, you know, there's many, there's several aspects to that, but the parts that really apply to human sexuality, because what I often say is we can't understand human sexuality unless we begin with theological anthropology. And what aspects of theological anthropology? Well, two parts that, that I think uh, are applicable and, and apply. First of all, were created in the image of God. I mean, we can't have theological anthropology without starting there with the Imago Dei. 
uh, Genesis one twenty seven that all human beings are created in the image of God, and um, so we, you know, and that means that we we have value and dignity that that um, you know more than other other created beings, and that we are the pinnacle of creation. But that is just the end. You know, we have Genesis three that comes along with the fall. So understanding the doctrine of sin, um, original sin, uh, having a sin nature, understanding actual sin and indwelling sin, as the, uh, you know, John Owen loves to talk about. The Puritans talked about, and how how that was that really helped us to better understand how we are uh, the, the the sin nature. And starting there with that foundation is really important. And, and how does that help us understand? Well, first of all beginning with the Imago Dei, that actually brings some correction to Christians that sometimes view this, uh, view those in the gay community with disdain. And I, I think I see this less and less now as we're realizing that these are just human beings, uh, that there are people who need to know Christ, they're lost, but they're not people that, that have no value. Uh, but I think maybe generations before, and maybe still people now, sometimes view those in the gay community as as worse of worse, or you know, talk to them as ruining our country or something. And what I often tell people is, you know, actually the real reason behind what's ru- ruining our country is not the gay community, or not even sinners, or not even heathen, but it's sin. This, you know, sin is what is ruining our culture. Uh, it's it's. It's the enemy that is deceiving individuals to to buy into his lie. So I, I think it's recognizing that every person is created in God's image. Now that's different than being a child of God. I think oftentimes I hear people use those synonymously, and they're not. The Bible talks about everyone is created in the image of God. Not everyone yet is a child of God. A child of God means that uh, we are no longer children of wrath as Paul talks about, and because of uh, grace, uh, you know, and because of faith, because of the work of Christ on the cross, we are now reconciled to God, which means then that God has adopted us and justified us. And and now we um, have converted and and we are now righteous because of Christ's righteousness. So we're not, not everyone is a child of God, but everyone is created in God's image. But another part is it helps us to diagnose this correctly, that we realize that the problem is sin nature. Because I would say for years past, Christians have diagnosed this incorrectly and treated this more as a disorder or as a psychological problem. And that's really Freud. And, and what do I mean by this? I'm sure some of your listeners have heard something like this, where people have said that the root causes of homosexuality are, and they'll list things like an absentee father, dominant mother, or abuse in one's childhood. And when we blame things in our past on our problems of the present, that is pure Sigmund Freud. And what is regretful is that sometimes Christians are more busy following Sigmund Freud than they are following Jesus Christ. And we need to realize that our problems of the present are not things, our hurts, or things that we have lacked from our past. 
Our problems of the present, namely our sinful behavior, is rooted in our sin nature. We can't blame others and be victims. That's Scripture does not talk about that we are victims. If anything, we could say we're victims of ourselves. We, you know, we we are the ones that brought out. Uh, we're the only ones to blame for our own sinfulness, and and yet Jesus brought the solution to that. Not anything that we have done on our own works, but because of the work of Christ. So actually, we are not victims at all, but in Christ we are victors. Um, so I think having that understanding can really help us to have a more biblical, better understanding about human sexuality. Um, your your book, which is very well written, by the way, I, I just mm. finished it this morning, um, is titled Holy Sexuality in the Gospel. Um, can you explain the term yeah. holy sexuality? Yeah, sure. So I, I came up with this term essentially because I was a bit frustrated with what I saw as the only options that were out there. So if it's not homosexuality and we need to resist that and um, same-sex attractions are, which I flesh out in my book, uh, talk about same-sex sexual desires, same-sex romantic desires, those are sinful and to be rejected and mortified as Paul talks about. The behavior is sinful. So homosexuality is, we need to mortify that. Um, but is then the answer heterosexuality? And and, and Jimmy, I, I'll, I admit, this is probably one of the hardest paradigms for people to break because we have gotten so much into this rut. And obviously, I mean, it's it, it kind of seems logical. We look at the Bible and we see the Bible blesses heterosexual relationships, Adam and Eve, uh, a man and a woman and, you know, marriage between husband and wife. So that's heterosexual. And that's true. However, marriage between a man and a woman, that's only one form of heterosexual relationship. There are other forms of heterosexual relationships. Mm-hmm. And the major- and all of those outside of marriage are all sinful. So by saying heterosexuality, which includes sexual relationships outside of man and woman in marriage, we could be tacitly endorsing sin. And so we don't want to do that. And I think the best thing to do is come up with the more correct term. So obviously marriage is something that God blesses. However, not everyone is married at any single moment. For example, everyone begins as a single person. You know, if you think about it, I always tell people and joke about it. I've yet to meet anyone who's born married. So everyone is single at some point in their life. Mm. Most majority of people will get married. I even hear people say that, you know, singleness is extraordinary. I don't know if I would use that word. It's it's not the uh, it's not as usual. Most people will marry. Uh, but what is known as a fact, every person at some point in their life be, uh, is single. Everyone begins single. Maybe they will get married later in life, uh, in their adult years. But even at the end of, uh, toward the end of one's life, if if people are married for 40, 50, 60 years, seldom do both go home to be with the Lord at the same time. Usually it's one leaving the other one behind, single, not by choice. So I, I think we, heterosexuality says nothing about singleness. That's why I came up with this term, holy sexuality, to more fully, more precise, more accurately, 
to without ambiguity to explain what it is exactly that God calls us to. And what is holy sexuality? Holy sexuality is quite simply chastity and singleness and or faithfulness in marriage. I read through the full counsel of God. Those are the only two paths that God lays for us. And notice I'm not saying two choices. I'm saying two paths uh, because singleness is not a choice. We all start out single. It's default. And when, when we begin single, how do we live regarding our sexuality? We're going to be chased. And I'm not saying celibacy. I, I'm, I'm avoiding that term celibacy. It's become popular in some circles. And, and I, I've, I'm a type of person that, you know, I love words. And I realize first and foremost, words have meaning and words matter. And if I'm going to use a word, I want to be very mm -hmm. careful about the words that I use that I don't want to cause more confusion. And celibacy, there's some baggage behind that term. Not only is it often related to the, the Roman Catholic priesthood, uh, which is not something that I would embrace as, as a, I guess, a product of the Reformation. And, um, and not only, especially today, when we see a lot of the controversy surrounding the abuse scandals in the priesthood today, but also just the concept of celibacy that is a lifelong chosen vocation. First of all, celibacy is not found in the Bible. It's, it's, you don't find it in the Greek New Testament text. It's, a, it's from the Latin root, a Latin root word, surprisingly, that we also don't even find in the Latin Vulgate. It's only purely from Roman Catholic Church history. And I think there's stuff that we need to read and learn about church history, but um, sola scriptura, we don't, we believe that everything is, needs to be put under the authority of, of scripture. Uh, just because church history or tradition says so, that doesn't mean that I'm going to embrace it unless it aligns with scripture. So do we find in scripture uh, where the Bible talks about or blesses or says that there's a calling for a lifelong chosen vocation? And the answer is no. First Corinthians 7, when people talk about this calling, so vocation means calling, vocatio in Latin, in Latin means calling. Um, the calling that Paul talks about, that, that people mistake as being the call to celibacy, is not a call to singleness or celibacy. What Paul is talking about, in other words, um, what were you at your, when, the time you were called? You know, Were you a slave? Were you free? Were you circumcised? Were you uncircumcised? Paul is not talking about what were you when you were called to singleness at all. What he was talking about is what were you when you were called to Christ, the call of salvation. And, and what Paul really was talking about there in the middle of 1 Corinthians 7 is to say that, that actually whatever condition you find yourself in, slave, free, circumcised, uncircumcised, married, single, actually all of that is irrelevant when compared to our calling Christ, our call of salvation. And that's that's very important. I think that's a great message that's that's so applicable today uh, for us. And um, so I, you know, this there's this term holy sexuality, really, you know, chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. And I chose ch chaste in marriage, people can use that, but I, I chose faithfulness because I think faithfulness is even broader than chaste. Chaste could mean you know purity, holiness, but faithfulness I think is more. Uh, even kind of going, going a step beyond, beyond that. I mean, I guess it could be chastity and singleness, ch chastity in marriage, but I thought faithfulness was even a more, that, that's more of a relational term where ch chastity is, is more of an individual statement where faithfulness mm -hmm. is about the other 
Uh, and so that's why I chose those two terms, those two paths. Um, I've had some interactions and, and we'll mm -hmm. talk more about revoice in a moment, but, uh, I've had some interactions with some of the planners of revoice and, and, and I think most of us would agree. And, and even those, at least some on revoice would agree that sexual or same sex sexual behavior is sin. Um, it's a little bit more muddy about whether or not lust is in and of itself sin, but I would say the Bible's clear that yeah. lust, lust is sin. However, when, when talking about same-sex attractions as well as sexual orientation, it gets very, very muddy. In fact, Nate Collins wrote a book, and he's one of the guys with Revoice, and I was reading through its chapters on sexual orientation after talking with him and he told me to go read his book so i i went yeah. to go read read a little bit of it yeah but it, it's very confusing and, yeah. and muddy and and dark um could you just kind of clear this up and and what may be some more biblical terminology to help us yeah. understand and process um, through this? I, I just i think it's really unfortunate i you know i'm, I'm familiar with uh the folks with spiritual friendship and um you know, I, I think they're wonderful people. I, I've known Nate Collins for quite some time back when he was not open about his, um, you know, what he would, he would call sexual orientation. Um, I, and, and as you read my book, I'm, I don't like that phrase sexual orientation because it's been conflated with, with ontology. And, um, and so therefore I find it problematic, but um, I knew him when he was a student at Moody. He was one year above me, even though I, I was uh, 11 years older than him. I'm out 12 years older than him. And, um, you know, because I, I went to Moody when I was 31 years old. They called me grandpa. <laughs> um, but uh, so he <laughs> graduated a year before me. Uh, just a, a good guy, gentle guy. And and um, I knew him also when he was very involved with Exodus. And, and he, for time, was really embracing... Um, or leaning heavily toward reparative therapy and, and was involved himself in reparative therapy uh, or being a recipient of reparative therapy and, and uh, support groups. And he found that at that time, he was telling me that he found that very helpful. And then when Exodus closed, he uh, began, began kind of being more affiliated toward spiritual friendship and, um, very strongly distancing himself away from not only kind of the reparative therapy groups, um, but also others like myself, Rosario Butterfield, et cetera, Sam Albury, um, and, and using and beginning to use even some language of violence um, that, that our message is violent or even um, reparative therapy that's called harm, you know, it was harmful, which, mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, maybe either he, he hadn't told me that, that he felt harm, which is totally possible, but um, it, it just was quite a stark difference in his message from, from what he had expressed after Moody when he was very, very involved mm. with some of the Exodus groups. And, and again, I'm, I, I don't think that the reparative therapy groups are, have it correct. I was, when he was so, so much advocating, I was actually telling him, I was like, that's not the answer. The orientation change is not the answer. Uh, it's holiness. You know, I was giving him the message that, you know, as you read in my book, that it's, it's chastity and singleness, faithfulness and marriage, not orientation change. Uh, it's not therapy counseling groups. That's the answer. Uh, I, I mean, I think 
uh, counseling can be help- biblical counseling is helpful. I think um, having groups where you can uh mm-hmm. you know know that you're not alone in your struggle can be helpful but it's definitely not the answer christ is and i'm gonna always stick to go back to that so i know nate uh, i know others uh ron belgao who's who's one of the co-founders of spiritual friendship west wesley hill and i think they really have nice nice folks i i my biggest struggle is that i feel like they their words are not precise they're quite ambiguous and in me writing my book, one main thing that I want to address, I wanted to address both sides, the reparative therapy side and the spiritual friendship side, which I honestly, I think both are uh, have the same mistake, which is elevating sexual orientation. On one side, they're elevating heterosexuality as the goal, and the other side uh, saying that homosexuality uh, or being gay is immutable and ch- unchangeable. In essence, it's and they won't they won't say this, but in essence, it seems like they are that it's part of who they are. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I'm, I think it's, this topic of sexual orientation is, is important. Um, and what I, what I, I wish everyone would do was not, no longer work in ambiguity and, uh, work in, uh, mudding the waters more. Mm -hmm. I, I wrote this book to be as precise as possible. Am I perfect? No, I'm always open. You know, I mean, I, even when I'm caging on social media or when I'm talking, I will be the first to admit I am not inerrant. And if there's something where I said something wrong, I would love for people to, to engage with me, point that out, point to scripture first. Don't point to what you think or feel or what you think, you know, these, these categories that are so like, for example, heterosexuality, I think that's an ambiguous category. Um, Sexual orientation is an ambiguous category. Attractions is an ambiguous category. Meaning, what do you mean? Attraction is not found in the Bible. Do you mean temptation? Do you mean desire? Those are biblical categories, and let's use those. If if there's, not to say that we always have to use biblical terminology, but if there is zero biblical terminology in the Bible, then I think we should come up with a term. But if the Bible is already using terminology that we can use instead of for example, attraction, then I think we should use that. And definitely the Bible does. For example, I just stated temptation and desire. And that's, that's why I have a whole chapter on temptation, a whole chapter on desire to really break that down and talk about um, the morality of of either, of, of both. And, and and I talk about the, the teleological uh, aspect of desire, that all desire has a telos. And that helps us to, to determine what is sin or not. But, uh, for example, Nate comes up with this concept of aesthetic orientation. I mean, so as if sexual orientation isn't already muddy um, and, you know, <laughs> come up with this term aesthetic orientation. I'm like, what what does that mean? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I really want to be clear. Uh, sometimes when I speak, I, I give I make a statement to kind of get a little bit of a. Uh, a response. Uh, you know, I say we're living in a world of infinite shades of gray, not just 50. <laughs> And, you know, when it comes to sexuality, we are living, you know, in gray. And I think, <laughs> I feel like spiritual friendship relishes in, in working in this gray, in this grayness. Uh, Ron Belgao also will talk about uh, same-sex love. And yes, love is a phrase that we found in the Bible, but it has been so twisted in our world today that to use that word love, it's only almost meaningless. I love chocolate. I love, you know, I don't know 
the Bears, which I don't really watch football, or I love whatever, hockey, or, you know, I love baseball. Um, I lo- and, and we use the same word to say, I love my wife, or I love my family, or I love my child. Um, so to say same-sex love, whew, that's, you know, we're called to love our neighbors ourselves, but we also love, as the world knows it, almost equates love with sex and love in marriage. So I, 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 I don't want to uh, work in grayness, which is why I don't know if you notice. Um, if, if you, you read my book, what's what's the what's the uh, the cover color of my book? You remember? It's black and white, and actually that it's was very and intentional. And so a lot of times people don't catch this, but I wanted to. I wanted to. You know, people pick pick up my book from the minute they look at the cover to when they read the first page to the, to the middle to the end i wanted them to see that biblical sexuality is not gray it's not muddy it's not unclear biblical sexuality i call holy sexuality is black and white so it's actually very intentional we had all these other cover designs i'm like i told my publisher i was like let's just do black and white and i added some gold in it well it looks like maybe brown but it's supposed to be gold because you know maybe gold is holiness but there was a little thought behind that because i i wanted to not muddy the waters anymore so because we often hear people say well same-sex attractions are not sinful well what do you mean what does attraction mean because i think when people say same-sex attractions are not sinful they are equating attractions mm-hmm. with temptations well but what about desires because i think desires can be maybe in the, in the same semantic range as attractions. And I would, and this is where I would also agree, disagree with Ron Belgao, that Ron says that same-sex desires are not sinful, but same-sex sexual lust is. The problem with this, and I don't think he realized this when he made this statement several years ago, is that epithumia, the Greek word for desire in the New Testament, can be translated, I'm sure, as mm-hmm. you know, not only as desire, but what? Lust. And, and, uh, but and also the word in uh, in mm-hmm. the Hebrew um, in the Old Testament, the word for desire is also translated for the word uh, covet. So uh, it's the Hebrew word chamad. And when we realize that, here's so interesting: it's not that desire turns into lust; it's wrongly desired, wrongly ordered desire is lust. It is sinful. So same-sex desires are sinful. Temptations may not be sinful, but it is rooted in our sin nature and needs to be resisted and mortified, and uh, we need to flee those temptations. But I wanted to, you know, really clear up the air there and to talk about aesthetic orientation. I mean, I think I understand where Nate is going from, coming from, and this is why also Wesley Hill also talks about how, um, and he wrote a blog post on the Spiritual Friendship uh, website, which is... I mean, they, they do a lot of writing and there's a lot of different writers and it's really hard to kind of say exactly what a spiritual friendship is saying. But I mean, if it's on their website, you know, it's hard not to say that that's mm-hmm. something that they that they do hold. So Wesley Hill has said that being gay is sanctifiable. I find that very problematic because and the, and the reason why Wes would say that the reason why Nate would call it aesthetic orientation is because, for example, Nate would say he finds beauty in the same sex. What, again, what does that mean? <laughs> um, are those sexual desires or those romantic desires or are they those platonic desires? And those are the categories that I use, again, to be as clear as possible. I, I feel like those are pretty clear, clearly uh, 
at least more clear than just aesthetic or beauty. Yes, romantic, that can be harder to define, but I think it is more clear than, um, than the other categories. And, and I gave some examples of what romantic desires are or behavior are. But the reason why I think that the a problem that they're dealing with is mm-hmm. they are um, expanding the mean of sexuality beyond what it is, what it truly means. In other words, for Nate and Wes and Ron, they believe sexuality includes platonic same-sex desires so that Wes calls himself or a friend has called Wes um, a, a, a genius at making same-sex friends, a genius at friendship because he's gay. That's, that's how he would word it. And, and this is from Wesley Hill's book, Spiritual Friendship. I find that quite peculiar that because, for example, if I have same-sex attractions, does that make me have a better ability at being friends with men of the same, uh, people of the same sex? And I would say no. I, that's not. Sexuality does not include our platonic, non-sexual, non-romantic desires for friendship with the same sex. If, if that were the case... You know what that would make you, Jimmy? That would make you buy. I mean, I'm sure you have desires to be friends with. Maybe you have a, a best friend that's a guy, or and maybe you know, maybe it's your accountability partner. Mm-hmm. Maybe someone you went to, you know, Missouri Baptist with. Maybe someone you grew up with. He's a guy. You have no sexual desires for him, no romantic desires for him. But if your platonic, just pure golly, holy desires to be friends with him are part of your sexuality, then Jimmy, that would make you either gay or bisexual. That would make my mother a lesbian. And I find that not only, you know, a little bit peculiar, but I find it a bit absurd. Hmm. Um, so I think this concept of aesthetic orientation hmm. is, is not correct. But the reason why they're doing this, I believe, is that they're trying to make gay not purely something that's rooted in our sin nature. To make it like, you know, it's not so bad that, and the way I see it is if, if sexuality is sexual and romantic, either desires or behaviors. And so if we're talking about same sex, sexual desires, same sex, romantic desires, same sex, sexual behavior, same sex, romantic behavior, those are all sinful and need to be rejected and mortified. And this is where there's a clear distinction uh, where I would say that, and I wouldn't say these words being gay, but my same sex, uh, attractions or desires or behaviors all need to be mortified. There's not anything that can be somehow redeemed or made better or seem to be good. Hmm. Um, in your book, I, I appreciate it as, as a man who has been married for four years um, with one child. I appreciate that you had a couple of chapters on marriage. So I'm going to rope sure. a couple of questions into one due to time. Um, you portray a very biblical view of marriage, and, and you also point out to some errors that have taken place within within Christianity as it pertains to marriage and singleness as as well as interacting with with those who have same-sex desires um could you just flesh out how the church 
should approach these these various issues? Like, what are some practical things we can do about teaching a a proper view of marriage as as something that is is in reality temporary, and 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 then also teach us on on singleness? And 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 you kind of alluded to that yeah. earlier, but if you could just kind of yeah, flesh definitely. those things think, out with us um, in, I mean, you, in these you final moments, the most important part that that marriage is temporary. You know, I think. Uh, uh, the the key to um, understanding human sexuality is not only beginning with theological anthropology, but but as my subtitle says, it's it's understanding sex design relationships that is shaped by God's grand story. What is God's grand story? Well, it's the redemptive arc of God's work um, working in His people, and that begins with creation, then the fall, then redemption. In other words, the coming of Christ. And then finally, consummation. So when we understand sexuality in light of that, um, we need to understand marriage in light of that. We need to understand singleness in light of this. And oftentimes when we're talking about marriage, I only hear about marriage talked about the here and now. The, the, the short 70 years we have here on this earth. Not to say that that's not important, but when we don't talk about the actual eschatological aspect of marriage, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, that it's the mystery, the mysterion, that it's pointing to the ultimate reality, the consummated reality of Christ in the church. Mm-hmm. We're missing the main goal of marriage, that marriage as we know of it today is, it's just a flicker. It's its just for the here and now. Um, I, you know, I, I, I had this amazing um, I think the most powerful part of my about my chapters, which which interestingly enough, I wanted to originally have one chapter on marriage, one chapter on singleness, and they turned out to be so big that my uh, ed- editor and publisher was like, "You got to put these into two. So I ended up in the heart of my book uh, it are two big chapters on marriage and two chapters on singleness. But I think what makes my my two chapters the greatest is not even anything that I wrote. <laughs> it was I I just copied and pasted. Uh, this wonderful, marvelous story about a retired pastor, uh, nine years old, who's who's who was just recently widowed, uh, and it's Pastor Ken Smith, and he was the pastor that, uh, through his love for the Lord, him and his wife Floyd, and their love for the lost, uh, brought my really good friend Rosario Butterfield to faith, uh, just through a slow witness, through their love and hospitality. But Floyd had just has just recently passed away, maybe I think uh, three or four, maybe three years ago. And of course, I mean, they grieved. They were married 60 years and he missed her. Uh, and, and well-meaning people would always say, oh, don't, you know, are you looking forward to the day that you're going to be reunited with, with your wife in heaven? And uh, <laughs> his answer was so funny. And he simply told them, I don't have a marriage. I don't have a wife in heaven. And he totally gets what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter tw- chapter 22, what Jesus says, that there will be no marriage in heaven. He will have no wife in heaven. I mean, if, if, because if that were the case, then the story that, that was given to Jesus, that, that that woman would have seven husbands, and that's ludicrous. That that we know that isn't true. So there is no marriage in heaven. Um, you know, Scott McKnight actually believes that, 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 that Jesus is not saying that there's no marriage in heaven, that there actually is. But if that's the case, then that the question that was put forth, um, which was quite 
quite a radical, ludicrous story, would then be true. But Jesus is actually saying, no, that's not true because there will be no marriage in heaven. But but uh, Pastor Ken Smith was was just giving it, and he was explaining how his marriage has not been halted, has not been cut short. And the way he puts it is, his marriage has been fulfilled. And he talks about how that, that you know, when people are like, are you looking forward to seeing Floyd? And his answer was quite simply, what I am looking forward to is being you fully united with my Savior. And I love that. Uh, you know, we, though we may individually be no, no longer married or not married, like for myself, I'm not yet married. I, I'm open to marriage. People, you know, people, they see me as single and they, I'm not saying I'm not open to marriage, but God has yet to provide that for me. I mean, obviously, I mean, I, I have HIV, so that I, have, I have some complications in, in uh, my own personal situation. And uh, But I'm open to marriage. You know, God would have to provide a really patient, godly woman to put up with my best. But I'm open to that. But for, for right now, I'm not. And in eternity, um, I will continue to be unmarried. But we as the redeemed, we as the elect, we as the one who have been bought by the blood of Christ, the body of Christ, we will be all as a whole, as corporate body wed to the Lamb of God. And that's a beautiful thing to, to think about. Um, so when we understand marriage in that way, that then helps us understand singleness. That that singleness is is talking about the the already but not yet. That we're in between the times, in essence. That that we know that um, Christ is not, you know, that, that we're that we're sanctified, but yet we're still being sanctified. But there's going to there's going to be a time when we will be fully sanctified. And and um, and though many people receive joy and hope and fulfillment through marriage, that as redeemed individuals who are not yet married or not married, um, we can still live with that hope. So I, I really believe that for us to before we begin to address this issue of sexuality, and I'm not just talking about homosexuality, I'm talking about sexual brokenness, we need to first redeem singleness. Because oftentimes people say, if a person is struggling with lust, he or she must get married. And I think they're, mm. they're using tunnel vision to only look at the passage that Paul says, you know, you don't want to burn, you know, you, just, you, don't, want, you don't want to burn. And so therefore, you, you know, get married. Um as if that's the only reason we should get married. That Paul is, that's not his only reason to get married. That if you're struggling with lust, then get married. Because actually, when I work with guys who are dealing with structural brokenness, believe me, my first answer is never get married. If they're dealing with sexual brokenness and especially sexual addictions, actually, and they want to, actually, this is just an example. A, a week ago, a guy was rest, really wrestling with, um, such a brokenness. And, and then he was telling me about this, you know, young lady he just met, he didn't even barely, he didn't even know her name and uh, clearly expressed an interest. And I just told him that needs to be the last thing on your mind right now. What you need most, you need to be focusing on your union with Christ. You need to be daily renewed in Christ and working on your daily revival. You need to be strongly connected with the local church and uh, coming under the headship of a local church and his pastor and the elders and being mentored and discipled. Do not focus upon dating a girl. <laughs> uh, and this guy was even struggling with saying such attractions. So, you know, I think we need to realize the answer is Jesus. If, if sin is a problem, the answer is Jesus. 
so that I, I think that's really helpful for those of us as we're ministering to those wrestling with saying such attractions, especially for pastors, when oftentimes they feel ill-equipped. How do I help this individual that just came in my office who says I have saying such attractions? And and unfortunately, you know what the answer is, Pastor Jimmy? Oftentimes the answer is here's a card. It's a business card, and they refer this individual out to someone else. And what I see that as probably the most mm. unfortunate thing that we can. We are pushing people out of the very institution where we find the best context for discipleship and sanctification, which is the local church. Pastors are are pushing off their responsibility to mentor and disciple. What's the problem? The problem is sin. Christ is the answer. And if Christ is the answer, you know what's part of the answer? The body of Christ. The body of Christ is the, the best context for discipleship and um and, and accountability and uh, you know to and sanctification to occur which is why you know in the back of my uh, book one of my chapters is on spiritual family not spiritual friendship I think yes th- there's a lot that we can learn about being good friends we need to men need to be better mm. at being more intimate and honest and uh, not be afraid and being transparent. Because oftentimes in our culture today in the West, especially Christian West, we are not uh, transparent. We are not honest with one another, men to men, and we need that more. However, I don't think that the best phrase to use is friendship. First of all, you find almost silence in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament about friendship, almost silence. Instead, what do you find? There's so many places where we hear about the term about family. In other words, kinship, brothers and sisters in Christ. We're adopted. God is our father. Uh, Christ is our head, the family, and the family is the body of Christ. So where I see, again, where reparative therapy groups have missed out is they've, they're have they pulling people out of the family of God, the spiritual family, into these parachurch organizations. Not to say that parachurch organizations can be helpful, but I think most parachurch organizations are not using as the home base the local church. Instead, they're pulling people away to become dependent on the parachurch, and that is definitely not, that's that's the worst thing that could happen. And then the other side, where the spiritual friendship, I think what I don't see mm-hmm. enough, I mean, there, there is some, but I don't see enough is where there's very, very intentional talk about you must be connected to the body of Christ. I've seen repeatedly um, where in big cities, where there would be, Little communes, whether it's four or three um, apartments where, where you know, gay celibate men, they live together, they've, they've come covenanted together, spiritual friends, and many of them are disconnected to the local church. And, and sometimes what I see is in these uh, covenanted friendships, they often turn from gay celibate Christians to becoming lovers and uh, they begin dating. And I think one of the problems there is there's no headship. Mm. Why do we need the church, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> I'm asking you, Pastor Jimmy, you know, why do we need the church? I'm sure you have tons and tons of answers, but I think many of those, especially, you know, Gen Zs, are, are this younger generation, these Gen Xers, mm-hmm. they think that the local church is optional. You can't love Christ and not love the body of Christ. And so, Actually, one of the main purposes of me writing this book, not not just to give more clarity on on biblical sexuality, 
But one of the main purposes, and, and I took my cues from my good friend Rosario Butterfield, and she's a church woman. Everything that she says, everything that she writes, points people back to the local church. And, um, and I was like, yes, that's it. And uh, so one of my purposes of my book is to bring the local church back into, as it always should have been, uh, back into this conversation when we're ministering to individuals wrestling with sexual brokenness. Mm, thank you. And, and I did heartily enjoy those final portion. I enjoyed the whole book, but I, I did enjoy those portions on, on the local church and pointing people to being involved in and, and a, a, a member of a local church where, where they can have Christ ministered to them from, from others who God has equipped for that work. Um, we're coming on end, time, so, end of time, so I'm just going to ask you real quick if you have any source recommendations and maybe even just some last words of encouragement to anyone who's listening. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, I've I've probably mentioned her several times already. Um, Rosario Butterfield, I, I, if I were just to be honest, I think she, in my mind, is probably the most important voice when it comes to this topic of sexuality. Um, she's become a really good friend. I call her sister. She calls me bro. <laughs> uh, she calls she calls my mom and dad, mom and dad. <laughs> We've really become family. I, her little kids call me uncle Christopher and um, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's spiritual family. We, we really are brothers and sisters in Christ and she's one of my uh, closest friends, but all three of her books are, um, they're just phenomenal. They're, they're off the charts. Good. Uh, beginning with her memoir, open it, um, a secret thoughts of an unlikely convert. And um, then her second book, openness unhindered, which is, um, What's the subtitle? For the thoughts of an unlikely convert on sexual identity and union with Christ. I would say her book, that second book on sexual identity, uh, from what I've read, is was one of the first books that addressed this issue issue from a philosophical and a theological perspective, a framework. Uh, and, and as I read that, I was like, oh, we need more of this. Uh, so her book actually was was a was a big part of an impetus to help me uh, to write this book, Holy Sexuality. So I, I see those the, those two books as kind of hand in hand. They they go well uh, together. Then her newest book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, uh, Practicing Radical Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World, uh, was is just really good on, on just hospitality. Um, other resources that I would suggest. So when it comes to singleness, I would say um, Barry Danilak is phenomenal. His book, Redeeming Singleness, uh, is, is a great book. And, uh, and that's not as approachable and not as readable for the lay person, but the best book is, it's a booklet that he has written. It's called A Biblical Theology of Singleness. And I know that doesn't sound like something uh, a lay person would pick up, but it really is written for the lay person. The title, I wish they would have retitled it and made it more catchy, but it's a little booklet put out by Cambridge's little press called Grove Books. And you can only get it uh, through Grove Books in the UK but it is worth it. You can get a digital copy, I think just for three pounds, or you could pay an additional three pounds to have it mailed to you. It's, it's probably 40 pages and you could probably read it in one hour. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it, it blew my mind. It was so good. Um, I, I would say Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, talking about um, the Christian worldview and kind of this neo-Gnostic new perspective. 
And um, yeah, I, I think there's other good writers. Sam Albury is 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 good. Jackie Hill Perry uh, is is helpful. I think Doug uh, Beckett Cook. Also, I've yet to read his new book, but I think those are folks that I would say uh, get it. That um, which I think the most important thing mm-hmm. is sexuality is not who you are, but it's how you are. So I think that's that's really helpful. But other thing, other books that are really helpful, like just on sanctification and holy living, I think uh, David Mathis' Habits of Grace was really helpful for me. Um, and of course, kind of the old classic, uh, John Owen's uh, Over, Overcoming Sin and Temptation were, were really helpful for me. Mm, thank you, Dr. Yuan. Um, thank you for all who have been listening to the Covenant Podcast. We have been talking about Holy Sexuality, which is the title of Dr. Yuan's latest book. I heartily recommend it to you as I, I've, I've read it. Um, it is very good, and, and you would do well to read it for yourself. Um, this episode of Covenant Podcast, again, is just brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, you can find them at cbtseminary.org. Again, you can find them at cbtseminary.org. Thank you for listening. And Dr. Yuan, thank you for coming on and chatting with us. Thanks so much for having me on, Pastor Jimmy. It's been a joy. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. If you've enjoyed this resource or you simply like the Covenant Podcast, head on over to our iTunes page, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are also available via Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and Podbean. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.